Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, February the 20th, 2024. It is currently 6.50 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where this studio is about to turn into, well, the Theology Central radio studio. Yes, this is about to become a well, an experiment in radio. Well, I, I guess we'll call it radio. I don't know what, how else we define this. A An ongoing live broadcast where we play all kinds of different things from our large library of past sermons, um, devotional, Bible study, who knows? And I, I don't have a specific order for anything, but I, I want to at least attempt this. Now, some of you may think it's a great idea. After about 10 or 15 minutes, you may go, you know what? Actually, this isn't a very good idea because, hey, all of that stuff is available online anyway. Why do I need to listen to the Theology Central radio feed? Well, there's a high probability you never, you're not searching our archives, looking through everything. So this way I can pull different things and play different things. And maybe you'll hear something that you've never looked for, or maybe you remember listening to a long time ago, but have forgotten about who knows. I I just know that we have thousands upon thousands of hours of content, literally thousands upon thousands of hours. And in many cases, it's just in a sense, sitting in a dusty corner Digitally speaking, right? It's in a digital corner, all covered in dust. No one has touched it. No one has looked for it. No one has done anything with it. So what if I go back into the the dusty corner, dust it all off, reach over, grab like, let's take this digital file and let's play it on the Theology Central Radio. Now, I don't know how long I'm going to keep this going this evening. I don't know. I don't know how much I'll do this tomorrow. I don't really know. I'm just going to try this and see what happens. It's kind of an experiment right now. It may be crazy, but, you know, why not try it? Why not try it? You've got all of this content. Do something with it, right? It just feels like a a waste to have thousands and thousands of hours and it just kind of sits there. And then, and I mean, if you'll, if you'll look, if you'll, you can even do this on uh, the Sermons 2.0 app. Look when a broadcast or a broadcast, I call everything a broadcast because I'm a podcaster, but look when a sermon is uploaded, look when a broadcast is posted, right? And then watch it and monitor it for like 24 to 72 hours, right? That's where most of the numbers are going to come from. And then in many cases, unless they're very well known and unless they're famous, in many cases, the numbers kind of drop off. Now, people may find it over the months or years as they're searching for particular scripture or something. They may locate it. But, you know, you, you already know if you look up a, a, a scripture reference, you're going to find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons. What are the chances someone's going to find yours? So a lot of those files, they're uploaded, they're being maintained, but is anyone really dusting them off and using them? So I thought, let's do something, right? Let's do something. So tonight begins what we're going to call Theology Central Radio, and we're going to kick this off by going back to October the 25th, 2020, October the 25th, 
2020. Now, it could have been October the 24th, and I didn't upload it to the 25th, but that's the date that's listed, October the 25th, 2020, and we started a brand new series where we studied a creed from church history, but not one of the well-known creeds, not one of the famous creeds, but the Niagara Creed. Now, the funny thing about this series is over time, there was dispute on how to spell Niagara, right? There was there was this big, because some resources had it spelled completely different. And so then there were people on, on YouTube going, you don't know how to spell, and this is wrong. And I'm like, well, look at this. Look at this article. And they're like, well, I don't care. You should know how to figure that out. And then there was lots of debate and back and forth. And But the point is, it turned into an argument about spelling instead of talking about the content of the actual creed. Sometimes it's so weird. Like you can do an hour long broadcast. Talk about something you know, very important about theology or about a major issue facing the church or a major issue facing Christianity or or a crisis of some sort. And someone will email you going, you know, you, you said that incorrectly and you know, you said this wrong and you know, you said this wrong and you know, you said this wrong and I don't like your picture and, and I don't like this and I don't, and you're like, so nothing about the actual content, nothing, nothing. Nothing. Okay. Well, thank you. Yes, I know. I my subject verb agreement was off, and sometimes you're just like, so for some weird reason that series turned into an argument about spelling, even though it turned into like forty, fifty hours of discussion. And I'm not exaggerating. I think it was around forty to fifty hours of hour after hour of teaching on this creed that most people don't even know exist. So we're going to go back to October twenty fifth, twenty twenty. The Sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located in Ovalo, Texas, where I was working on the Niagara Creed. Are, is everything in it perfect? No, probably not. But hey, let's go back and let's listen. Now, this is a long one. This is like, a, this is like an hour and something. Uh, so we will, we will do this. And then at the end of that, we'll, we'll switch to something else and we'll pick something else. I, I, I hope this will be beneficial. Hopefully this will be uh, helpful. And uh, we'll see. We'll just see. And and look, if you have any thoughts about, well, this is a cool idea, but you should do this, or this is a bad idea, or I kind of think it's a waste, or I don't really think it's useful, by all means, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I think it has... Uh, it has some potential. It does. Now, obviously, if I had access to other people's content that we can mix in, I, I, I know I've been given permission for Dr. J. Vernon McGee's content. Be interesting if I could get permission to use some of it, uh, maybe for this, and then we can mix it in. So then we, but then again, I could, it could, this could turn in just to a never ending broadcast. So I don't know if I necessarily want to do this, but there are some times where I think it's interesting, right? Hey, Let's do this. And what I'm going to try to do is each program will be then stopped and uploaded as almost a, 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 like a podcast episode almost. It'll, it'll be, it'll be utilized and we'll create a series for uh, Theology Central Radio. And then every, all the broadcasts will be there, which will then take those things from the archive and put them back up front. So maybe we'll have to label them a little differently. Maybe I'll have to call it like Niagara Creed Part 1 and in parentheses, you know, um, TCR, Theology Central Radio. And so that we, we know what that is. I don't know. Who knows? There, there's, there's always ideas. But hey, let, let's do this.
Let's go back to October 25th, 2020, where I'm going to introduce a study on the Niagara Creed. I, and what's funny is when I reach back into the archive is I don't remember my feelings about it, right? Because it's been so long. Like there's always these times I get done with a message and I'm like, I'm going to delete that. And it should, it should never be heard from by anyone. But then, you know, now it's, I, I don't know. So like, I'm afraid to hit play because I'm like, I should listen to it first. But you know what? Let's just do this. October 25th, 2020, or October 25th, 2020. Here is what was happening. Here we go. All right. This morning we have a lot to cover. Now I know that we're supposed to be in Romans chapter 7. I know that. I would like to be in Romans chapter 7, but I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what to do with Romans chapter 7. And every time I look at it, the more frustrated I get with how to handle it, how to handle it correctly. So um, at the same time, I'm frustrated that... Because we have like one in-person service because of the COVID, um, I don't have the ability to say, okay, this is what we can do. We can use the Sunday school hour, we can use Sunday morning, and we can use Sunday night, right? Or, or I can use a, you know, a week of, of, of in-person services. Because there's some things I want to cover with you here, right? And because it's, it's a different, we all know there's a different dynamic here, right? I can ask you questions, you can ask questions, I can kind of get a reaction, it's different than sitting back there in an empty room. So there's something like with Romans 7, I don't want to do back in an empty room. I want you present because we're going to have to struggle with some very, 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 very difficult questions. Um, this morning, what I want to do is wonderful. The problem is um, this is going to start then kind of a mini series that I want to do only when you are here and... I can't win here. I can't win. So, but we're going to jump in and, and I'm going to try to cover this as, as fast as we can. We're going to deal with some church history. We're going to deal with a lot of important subjects. So let's jump in. All right. If you, if we want to know what we're going to be talking about this morning, I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to do the military way of speech, right? I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about. Then I'm going to talk about it. Then I'm going to tell you what we talked about. Okay. I can't stand that. Well, okay. But that's the way they taught, they taught me how, how to do speech. I, I, I didn't follow it any time they told me to give me a speech, but that's okay. So uh, what we're going to be dealing with is we're going to be dealing with the Niagara Bible Creed or the Niagara Creed. The Niagara Creed, all right? You just call it the Niagara Creed, all right? Very, 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 very important creed in the history of Christianity. And the reason it's very important is because it's, it's much closer to the times in which we live. It's a more modern creed. And because of when that creed was established and what was going on, it's very relevant to the world in which you currently live. All right? Um, you can, the Niagara Creed, you can put 19th century. All right? 19th century. And what was happening in the 19th century is very important because it parallels a lot of what's happening and the world in which you live, all right? So what we're going to do, before we get to the Niagara Creed, we're going to look, we're going to start in the present, then we're going to go back to the past, establish a historical context, then we'll go actually, we'll try to get to the actual creed, all right? So obviously, you know I'm not going to be able to cover all of this this morning, so uh, this is where I needed, I needed two hours, but that's okay. I'm going to cover as much as I can. So let's start with the present, all right? Right now, as you and I sit here, 
Um, I've stated it, not, not only have I stated it once, I've stated it many times. If you've listened to any episode, podcast episodes I've been doing recently, I've talked about it. Right now, as we sit here, Christianity, as you know it, and as I know it, is not only under attack, Christianity, as you know it, is being redefined. Christianity is being redefined. What do you think I mean by Christianity is being redefined? What do you think I mean by that? Okay. Well, to redefine something is what? A new definition of what it is. So in other words, what's happening is Christianity is being redefined as being, this is now what Christianity is, but it's no longer going to be historical biblical Christianity. Yeah, if you redefine something, then it's not what it was. It becomes something different, right? You're redefining what it is. Christianity is being redefined, and sadly, listen, a lot of times when things are happening to Christianity, Christians are sometimes so so foolish in how we look, we'll look at things. We, we, this is what we have a tendency to do. We all kind of run to the window and we look out the windows of the church going, look at all those bad people out there. They're, look at all those bad people. The, the threat of Christianity all, rarely arises from without. It arises from within. And guess what? Who cares if the world redefines Christianity? Where do you need to be worried about the Christianity being defined? Inside the church. Right? Inside the church. Why, why is the threat of Christianity greater inside than outside? Why do you think the threat of, of, for Christianity, why do you think the inside threat is greater than the outside threat? Okay. Think of it this way. Outside... Rarely do they say, we're Christians. Inside always claims, we're Christians. We're, we're giving you Christianity. We're teaching the Bible. So what could be the greatest, what would be the greatest danger? Those that stand out there saying, that's not, you know, Christianity is a bunch of garbage. You know that they don't believe. It's when someone comes along saying, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. Hey, and then they begin to redefine it. You let your guard down. So the threat that comes from within is always greater than the threat than is without. That's why I've always put my focus on what, what is happening in the church. That's why I've said it a million times. You need to know what's going on inside Christianity. You need to know what churches are preaching. You need to know what books are being sold. You need to know that. If you don't know it, then you don't recognize it. And what you, when you don't recognize it, the next thing you know, you are believing a Christianity that's no longer Christianity and you don't even realize that you bought into it. You don't even realize it's been redefined. That, that is what you have to be careful of. So I want to start off. I've, we've, we've talked about this before, but I'm going to go through these relatively quick. Right now, Christianity, there is, a, I'm going to call it a, there, Christianity is a being attacked we're going to call, uh, we'll, we'll say four and four ways. Christianity is being attacked in four ways. Kind of a four-pronged attack at Christianity right now. Right? And, the, and the, what I want you to understand about this kind of four-pronged attack is the attack is redefining what Christianity is. Right? Redefining what Christianity is. And I know you're thinking, what does this have to do with the Niagara Creed? Has everything to do with it because what's happening today is very similar to what was going on in the 19th century. 
right? So remember, if you don't know history, you're bound to be a repeat, uh, you're bound to repeat it, right? Ignor- and ignorance of church history, I think, is where someone's going. Does not negate its influence. Well, things are happening right now. So, the first area, and this one's getting talked about so much over the last three weeks. This one's been talked about everywhere because a book came out a couple of weeks ago called Another Gospel. All right? Called Another Gospel. I've done podcast episodes about it. And even though everyone's praising the book and saying this book is wonderful, I'm very frustrated by the book. I'm very irritated by the book because the book now recognizes a problem that I believe the person who wrote the book comes from the very stream of Christianity that gave rise to the problem, okay? And, and now all of a sudden they're worried about it. Well, you should have been worried about it, I don't know, back in the 19th century. But the, the, this first attack is called progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity. Yes, that's what this book is about. This book is about progressive Christianity and how it's redefining Christianity, the book is, is, uh, was number one on Amazon. It's getting talked about everywhere. It's been on podcasts. I don't know how many episodes I've talked about it, all right? Progressive Christianity. And the name of the book is Another Gospel, all right? Now, let me give you just some basic understanding of progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity represents a post-modern theological approach to Christianity. Progressive Christianity represents a post-modern theological approach to Christianity. Or you could say they take this postmodern approach to do what? Redefine what Christianity is. Now just make sure you know, progressive Christianity is not necessarily synonymous with the progressive political ideals. It's not necessarily synonymous. However, you could argue there is some link there. All right? But it's a progressive postmodern idea to Christianity. Redefining what Christianity is. Let me give you just a little bit more information here, all right? Progressive Christianity developed out of the liberal Christianity of the modern era, which was rooted in Enlightenment thinking. Now, we could go all the way back to the Enlightenment, we, but I just want you to understand, the liberal Christianity of the modern era. I will go so far to say, are you ready? That... Progressive Christianity should trace its roots back to the liberal Christianity of the 19th century. Because when you read the, when you listen to the woman who wrote the book, Another Gospel, and her talking about progressive Christianity and giving you the warning signs of progressive Christianity, they literally are the warning signs talked about in the 19th century of liberal Christianity. And if you know what happened in, 19th century, in the 19th century, you had liberal Christianity, right? You had this liberal, higher critical thing of Christianity that was coming in. And there were two responses to it. Everybody remember the two responses to the, uh, the liberal theology of the 19th century? What were the two streams that flowed out? Fundamentalism, which said what? Fundamentalism is like, absolutely not. You're wrong. You're heretics. We're not going to tolerate your denominations. We're not tolerating your seminaries. We're pulling out of your denominations. We're pulling out of your seminaries. We're not going to have any fellowship with you. We're fighting you. We're arguing with you. We're going to condemn you. We have nothing to do with you. Get out of our face. Which led to the title of fighting 
fundamentalist, right? And what was the other branch? The evangelical. Now, the evangelical approach wasn't so much like, wasn't like, they didn't necessarily want to embrace it all. They made to reject it, but guess what they didn't want to do? Didn't want to fight. Didn't want to be so condemning. You know, we, can't we all get along? We, we can find ways to join hands and get together for, for certain social causes, right? And so the evangelical, I will argue that out of these streams, the way you get to, so you have liberal theology, I think you have the split between fundamentalists and evangelicals, or the evangelical movement, and I think the evangelical movement gives rise to progressive Christianity. Now, that goes against what some people would would view in church history, but I think I can back that up. I I see the evangelical world was the world. They didn't want to condemn everything. They didn't want to fight anything. I mean, we we saw what happened. When I condemned what churches were doing in Abilene on a quote-unquote Christian radio station, which would have been right there in the evangelical stream, what did they do to me? Kicked me off the air. Why? Because you can't condemn anything. Right? That's why, like, uh, Christian bookstores at, at, in, in Papillion, Nebraska, it was, it was not too far from where I went to Bible Institute. And on Saturdays, sometimes during our lunch hour, we'd go down to the Bible books, down, down to, it was called Divine Truth Bookstore, to, you know, to look at books. Well, guess what? Almost without fail, any books that were opposed to Catholicism, guess where the books were? Under the counter. I, I had to kind of walk up and go, I, I want that non-Catholic book. Okay, okay. You know, and like, you have to hide the books that are against Catholicism? Why? Because they didn't want to offend Catholics. Oh, what? I, I know what I wanted to say is, all your charismatic books in here offend me, okay? So remove all the charismatic books. No, so that, but they didn't want any book that offended, they didn't want any book that condemned anyone. That's the evangelical spirit. It's like, let's get along. Okay, well, guess what? That's going to give you to progressive Christianity. Does that, do you see how that, I'm kind of giving you the, the flow there, how that works? Does that make sense? All right. Um, as such, progressive Christianity is what some would refer to as a post-liberal movement within Christianity that seeks to reform the faith. Please note, reform the faith. You can write down, redefine the faith via the insights of postmodernism. And, and I, I think that's a good way to, to, to do that. All right? See if this sounds, uh, see if this sounds kind of familiar of 2020. Progressive Christianity is characterized by a willingness to question tradition acceptance of human diversity, and a strong emphasis on, what do you think? Social justice. Social justice. Does that sound familiar, 2020? Yeah. I mean, that's everywhere. Social justice, social justice, okay? That's progressive Christianity. All right, I'll go through this again. Uh, Progressive Christianity is uh, characterized by willingness to question tradition, Acceptance of human diversity. What do you think that can mean? There you go. LGBTQ movement. All right. Okay. And a strong emphasis on social justice. Strong emphasis on social justice. Now, I know I'm, I know I'm oversimplifying that probably a lot. I know that's a very oversimplification. But it's very important to realize 
that there's this thing called progressive Christianity. You can purchase the book, Another Gospel. You can read it for yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a book that I think is important. It just bothers me. I guess what bothers me the most about the book is it's written by, the, the girl who wrote the book was a part of the contemporary Christian group, Zoe Girl. That's right there in the evangelical world. And what happened is she was in the evangelical world and she met a progressive pastor and then she was like, oh, I don't know how to answer these questions in my faith and it's so horrible. And it's like, well, maybe because your evangelical church didn't prepare you to handle difficult situations. Oh, of those things. Acceptance of human diversity. All right. So so she, in a sense, kind of it just to me feels like she's whining that, you know, she didn't know how to handle this. Well, my thing is the book, you know what the book should start off doing, condemning the kind of church that did not prepare her to deal with the, the arguments of progressive Christianity. That's the thing that she should she should do. But they did not do that. So that's progressive Christianity. Now, I know that's an oversimplification of it. It's, it's there. You, 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 you can probably recognize it when you hear it. We're going to talk about some of the things that characterize what was going on in the 19th century, and some of that fits what was going on in progressive Christianity, and I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So there's progressive Christianity. Everybody got that? Okay. Now, what do you think is the second area of attack, or second kind of attack? Well, let me ask you, uh, let me ask a question, a very important historical question. Whenever something attacks Christianity, right, what do Christians have a tendency to do in response to an attack? Okay. How do we fight back? Well, you're, you're, you're pretending that Christians handle things in a correct way. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Okay, now. What did you say? Okay. What? Okay. No? We have a tendency that when we're attacked, right, here's the thing attacking us. We run to, no, the opposite extreme, which creates an, an opposite error. error. Does that make sense? Right? So we, we have a tendency to do that. You, you'll know, you see liberal Christianity, and you're like, man, they're worldly, they're ungodly. And then what was the response in many cases? To run to a no, to run over to a ultra ultra conservative that created almost a legalistic approach, right? And now, like, you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, right? And you're like, wait a minute, where do these rules come from? And the rules become more important than anything else, right? That's an opposite mistake, right? We go from one extreme to another. So, if progressive Christianity is over over here, then what would people run to in the opposite direction? Well, because a lot of people see progressive Christianity connected to what? I said it's not necessarily connected to it, but I think that there could be a link to it. Do you remember what I said it's not necessarily linked to? All right, but there's a lot of, when you start talking about social justice and human diversity, does that not sound like a progressive political movement? Well, then what are Christians going to do when they start fighting that? Ah, they're going to run over to an opposite error, which is Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. Do I, that's number two. The second thing is Christian nationalism. And that's not how you fight. That's not how you fight. Now, anybody know what Christian nationalism is? I thought someone back there didn't know. 
Do you, do you know Emma? All right. Well, Christian nationalists primarily focus on internal politics, such as passing laws that reflect their view of Christianity and its role in political and social life. Christian nationalism becomes what? How are we going to fight this? Politically. How are we got to we got to get Christian this and a Christian that, and we'll pass Christian laws and we'll make all those heathens act like they're Christians because we want a Christian world. And we're going to have a Christian world, not through evangelism, not what, because there's nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, go therefore and vote for the right person. Nowhere. But he says, go and do what? The Great Commission. Go and preach, baptize, teach. Evangelize, baptize, disciple. Does Paul run around saying, hey, you guys in Rome, you've got a really messed up leader. We need to pass new laws in Rome to reflect the Bible. Does Paul ever call for that? Anybody who thinks that the, the Bible says that, you're out of your... You, you, I mean, I'm sorry, you, you're, your reading comprehension skills is at an all-time low. You, you may need to go back and take some reading comprehension classes. Because it's not there. Isn't it crazy the Bible never addresses that? What kind of leaders were they living under? I mean, would you want, in Rome, were you being fed to the lions? No, but does Paul say, hey, we've got to overcome the government? No, there's never a Christian nationalism. That's, so people see kind of a liberal political Christianity, and they're like, you know what we need? We need to come over here, and we need, we need the American flag, and we need, and, and what are you talking about? That's not the answer. Please note, that's the, that's the same kind of error just on the opposite end. So a lot of times when I hear Christians arguing about quote-unquote progressivism or progressive things, their answer isn't Christianity, their answer is politics. That's not the answer. Right? Do you see why, why would Christian nationalism be an attack upon Christianity? Well, how did I start this morning? Christianity is being what? Redefined. Does progressive Christianity redefine it? Yes. Does, does Christian nationalism redefine it? Yes. All right, so therefore, what do you need to be worried about? Buying into which one? If you are more progressive leaning, you could have, next thing you know, turn your Christianity into a progressive leaning kind of liberal idea that supports anything, right? Supports abortion, LGBT, and claim the Bible supports it. And then if you're over here and you're like, I got to get away from those liberals, you're going to go run over here. Next thing you know, you're at a Trump rally, you know, waving your American flag with a Make America Great Again hat saying, this is Christianity. That's not Christianity either. Do you see the issue? And again, no one can argue with me because the Bible supports my view that the Bible never calls for political engagement to fix the world. It fix, what does it call for? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. That's what Christians are called to do. Right? There's no, there's no call for anything other in the scripture. All right? Number three. What do you think the third one is? The third one is connected to the first two. Political hijacking. Christianity is becoming politically hijacked. What do I mean by being politically hijacked? 
We sound like, <clears throat> again, I've, I've, given you all the, I've given you the ability to hear this in practice. You don't have to take my word for anything. Just Monday morning at 10 a.m., turn on American Family Radio. If, you don't wanna, if you're not in your car, you can download the American Family Radio app and listen to American Family Radio from 10 a.m. till uh, 6 p.m. You'll have a hard time at time realizing, am I listening to Christian radio or am I listening to Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, or Glenn Beck? You can go to 1470 AM, right? For, sometimes Glenn Beck sounds more Christian than Christian radio, and he's a Mormon, okay? This is how messed up things have gotten, okay? So 1470 AM, you can start, you know, there about 6 AM and go all night, okay? There's, there's 1470 AM, there's talk radio, or you can go to 91.3 American Family Radio, and sometimes you'll be like, I, I'm, I'll be in the car going, I don't know, what, this sounds like it's a Trump rally, now, it's supposed to be Christian radio. So what should they be doing? Gospel. And giving a theological perspective, not a... And it'll be there, they'll call, they'll call Nancy Pelosi her name, they'll, they'll call Joe Biden, you know, their little... They call them names, and, and just derogatory, worldly attitude. Nothing godly about any of it. Now, it may be, sound really cool to, to talk that way, but are you Rush Limbaugh or are you a Christian radio station? If I want to hear that, I can listen to Rush Limbaugh. I can listen to Sean Hannity. I can turn on Fox News. I don't need American Family Radio to give me that. So what's the point of even? Be- but then, they're, then they just did their share We're a ministry bringing people to Jesus. Please send me $1,000. Now you're bringing people to a conservative political perspective, not Jesus. Because I know this is a shock to people, but Jesus is not a Republican. Or an American. <gasps> Probably we shouldn't even listen to him then. Right? That... You see, that's, so what, what are the three things so far? Progressive Christianity, Christian nationalism, political hijacking, and then guess what number four is? And you know, this kind of teaching always makes me so popular on the internet, but that's okay. The, the people who get mad at me rarely have a scriptural uh, comeback, okay, because there's no scripture to support the political, <laughs> there's nothing there. Just show me where Paul's like, hey guys, we got to get the vote in, okay, there's none of that. No, he's like, hey guys, uh, I'm getting ready to be killed and just keep living out your faith, that, that's what you do. All right, um, what do you think number four is? What do you think number four is? Got to hurry. Illiteracy. And what three kinds of illiteracy are there that all Christians that are, that's attacking Christianity? There's three areas of illiteracy. What do you think they are? Biblical illiteracy. Very good. What do we mean by biblical illiteracy? They don't know the Bible. They don't know how to, they don't know how to interpret the Bible. Uh, just because you quote scripture and rip them out of context, okay, for your political purpose, does not mean you know the Bible. All right, that's still you can still be illiterate. I'm, I'm wonderful. You can quote a scripture and try to apply it to your political views. That's that's irrelevant. Can you actually understand the Bible and handle it in a meaningful way? If you're not, you're illiterate to it. Okay, does that make sense? All right, biblical literacy. What's another one? All right, church history. People are illiterate when it comes to church history. Can rarely articulate it, explain it. Because if they would know church history, they, would not, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't make the arguments they, they make. Like, where, where do you see Christians? Guess what? When Christians connected to politics, what happened? 
People die, so why would Christians like, no, we need to get back to it. No, you don't, okay? Because you're like, I, I, want, I want to have a Christian America. Wonderful, until Christians lose power, and then you get a Muslim America, and then you die. So no, I don't want a religious America, okay? I want America where the government leaves what alone? Leaves the church alone. Just leave me alone. Okay, you do whatever you do, then we preach because we believe the solution is salvation, not forcing people. Did Israel have good laws? The best laws on the book, right? Because they came directly from God. Who was their leader? And how did that work out? Right, because what could, even God being in charge could not do what? From a, I mean, obviously he could do it, but obviously he did not do it because he chooses whom he will and will not. But ultimately, guess what? Their hearts were not changed just because God was in the tabernacle. Their hearts weren't changed just because they had the uh, Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. Their hearts were not changed just because they were fed manna. Their hearts were not changed because they saw the parting of the Red Sea. That's frightening to realize that heart requires something else. All right, so that's very important. All right, very Christian message. So, and what's an, uh, so what's the three? Uh, we got how many areas of illiteracy so far? Two. Okay, there's one more. Everybody should know. Biblical church history. One other area of illiteracy. Okay, well, someone said philosophy. That's that's a beautiful answer. Okay, because everyone who's illiterate of philosophy should not speak to me. But but that's not what we need here. Okay, but that is a good one. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. Only, only people who attend this church would say that, okay? You'd not say that in any other church because they'd probably then throw you out and, or burn you at the stake for being a witch, okay? But what do you think? Starts with a T. Theological illiteracy, yes. Now, why is the illiteracy important? Because illiteracy, illiteracy is the soil in which Christian progressivism Christian nationalism and political hijacking can not only be planted, but it can grow into very big trees. Illiteracy is the way you get to the other things. If you're illiterate, then guess what can happen? Right? I can name some novels right now that some of you may know or may not know. If you don't know anything about the book, I can come along and tell you what. Whatever thing I want about the book, and you, and if you're not willing to go actually read the book, you'll walk away going, hey, did you know Tom Sawyer was literally about a zombie apocalypse that occurred in Missouri in the 1800s? Okay, like, now, hopefully you wouldn't buy that, but, but, it, but if you did, the only way to fix it is you'd have to go actually read the book. I know you could technically get those evil things called cliff notes that should be burned, and people who buy them should be shot, but that's a whole different st- story. You get the idea, right? If you don't know it, you can be deceived about it. You hear that? If you don't know it, you can be deceived about it. Let me state that again. If you don't know it, you can be deceived about it. So if you're illiterate to different things about Christianity, guess what can happen? You can be deceived. Look, just next time you see two people on a bicycle wearing a white shirt and a name tag called Mormon missionaries, invite them over to your house and wait till they start trying to lie to you about the Council of Nicaea. Now, why do they get away with deceiving so many people about the Council of Nicaea? Because the average Christian doesn't even know what it is. 
And, and the average Christian go, well, why do we have to study this in church? Well, because I don't know. When Mormon missionaries show up at your door, you actually know what they're talking about. And it drives me crazy when they lie to me. Ticks me off when they lie to me. And then when I call them out on their lies, then they're like, well, that's not what we learned. Well, because you learned a lie and you didn't actually go study the actual events of the council. So that's, that's a whole different story. So you see why those things are important? See how those four attacks work together? Progressive Christianity. What do we have a tendency to do? Run to an opposite and equal error. Okay? Political hijacking. Why is that such a big deal? Because our country is so... Do you see, we, for this election, we may have the highest turnout since like 1908? Yeah, it's insane. The number of people have already voted. It's crazy. Right? So right now, guess what happens? Whenever, whenever people give away, push away religion and give up religion, what do they always do when they give up uh, God? They replace God. They replace God. So get, since we're, we're in a post-Christian world where God has been replaced, what are people replacing the worship and the following of God and doctrinal creeds in the Bible with? Political ideology and political identity. That's why our country is so politically divided, because everyone has a political opinion, because what, they, what have they replaced it with? They replaced God with politics. That's what's happened. And then Christians buy into it. And then Christians are on social media uh, being more political than they are being spiritual. The world doesn't need your politics. Give the world your politics, they still die and go to hell. Convert someone to, to Trump, they still go to hell. They don't need Trump, they need Jesus. So stop getting out there to being worrying about everyone's political views and be worried about their eternal destiny. But Christianity is bought into all of this. They've just been they've been sold a bill of goods, and someone has to stop all of this. All right. Now, guess what? Those are the four areas being attacked. Now, here's here's what you need to know. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. How do I know it's going to get worse? Well, it's going to get worse because it's been prophesied to get worse, okay? That, that's, the, that's the right answer. Let's look at a couple of passages. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. What's going to happen? There's going to come a time they're not going to endure sound doctrine. What are they going to do? Find teachers that say what they want to say, what they want to hear. And what are they going to turn their ears away from? The truth. That day is coming. That day is here. That day has been here for a long time. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Oh, please note though. What's the solution to the turning away? What's the solution? No, go back to verse 2. Preach the word. And what does it say? In season and out of season. The solution is not politics. 
The solution is not a political ideology. The solution is not getting laws voted that make you feel more comfortable. The solution is not saving your country. The solution is preaching the scriptures. Paul does not say anything about voting, does he? Preach the word. That's the the solution. In season and out of season. That means, guess what a preacher is to do? When you don't want to hear it, I can't worry about it. If you all leave, I can't worry about it. Now, that's not a good, that's not a fun job description. Typically, your job description is know your customer, please your customer, so that your customer continues to support you. My job is give the customer what they need, not what they want, which is preach the word, and you may not always, and everyone claims they want it, but we all know that that, how much that works out, right? They all claim they want the word, and when the only thing you give them is the word, how quickly they want something other than the word. The way to prove if your people in your church actually want the word, only give them the word. And then when they all leave to go find other things, you know they didn't really want the word. Because it's quick how fast they want other things. We need a camping trip. We need this. We need that. I thought you wanted the word. Well, you know, the church has to do these other things. Oh, yeah, it's all over scripture about all those other things we're supposed to do. Right? Okay. I'll go to First Timothy chapter four. We've got to hurry, gotta hurry, gotta hurry, gotta hurry. First Timothy chapter four, verse one. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter times some shall what? Depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. It's prophesied. It's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse. Now, here's the here's the hundred dollar question. You ready? $1,000 question, million dollar question. I don't know how much money to put to it because you should all know this answer. All right, are you ready? Okay, now we talked about what Christians do when we're under attack, when we do it the wrong way, right? We go to the equal and opposite error. Now we're gonna, we're gonna focus on when Christianity has faced times of great apostasy, of great error. What has the church done when it does it correctly? What does it always do to try to meet and fight apostasy? Say, say creeds. Very good. That, that's, kind of, that's why I told you what we're going to talk about. Why do they go to creeds? There we go, to define what Christianity is. And why do they need to write down a definition of Christianity? Because the errors they're fighting are trying to do what? Redefine Christianity, right? Arius. Arianism tried to redefine the nature of God, and what do they have to do? A creed, reestablish it, right? Or they had creeds, sometimes they would have councils or synods to try to write down, but they would write out documents, sta- documents stating, this is Christianity, and if you deviate from it, you are anathema, because Christianity has a definition. So guess what? That means it's very important in a time where Christianity is under attack by progressive Christianity, Christian nationalism, political hijacking, and everyone's absolutely illiterate, then what is it a time to reestablish? We need to get back to certain creeds to say this is what Christianity is. So why would I choose the Niagara Creed? Well, it's modern, but it, it was established... In the 19th century. Let me explain what was going on in the 19th century. 
right? There was a couple of things going on in the 19th century, right? You ready? I'll just go through these quickly. I've done podcasts on these, but I'll go through them. You had a revival of Roman Catholicism. Uh Uh-huh. A revival of Roman Catholicism. Well, Roman Catholicism, as you heard me do, what, almost two hours about their doctrine of imputation, right? How they basically completely redefine what imputation is. Like, that's not the same thing as what we believe, correct? So guess what? That's, that's a different kind of Christianity than we. We've got to define which one is right and which one is wrong. And we don't, we don't focus on they wear robes and we don't wear robes. They chant and we don't chant. They use Latin and we don't know Latin. No, we focus on what's the definition of the doctrine Oh, what do they believe about imputation? Now we can get somewhere, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So you had Roman Catholicism. What else did you have? You had Marxism. You had Marxism. What's another thing you had? Theological liberalism. Ah, theological liberalism. That's how we get to progressive Christianity. Where does it begin? Yeah, Germany, yeah. 19th century and, I, and if you go listen to my, uh, if you go listen to my history and origins of fundamentalism, I go through the two major names: Friedrich Schleiermacher, I think is how you say his name, and Wellhausen. Those are the two names you should. Everyone in church history should know those two names. Uh, but I, I don't have time to go through everything they did. But let's listen to nine. These were the nine characteristics of the theological modernism in the 19th century. All right, you know I'm not going to have time to write these down, but just listen to see if they sound familiar. You ready? Number one, a rejection of the historical Christian doctrine of biblical inspiration. Going after the doctrine of inspiration in some way, shape, or form. Well, well, you know, Paul, Paul was just reflecting the attitude of the age when he talked about women. Right? This just, we don't read that as inspired. That's just Paul giving his opinion. Okay. Number two, a tolerance of all views that come from within the religious community. Got to be tolerant of all different views. Can't condemn. Can't be mean. Does that not sound familiar? Number three, an emphasis upon the validity of human experience over the revealed truth of God. That sound familiar? The validity of your experience. If you if you feel it, if you experience, then guess what? It's true. No matter what scripture says. Number four, a denial of the absolute and unique deity of Christ. Next, an emphasis on the dignity and goodness of man. People are basically good. Number six, a rejection of total depravity of man and the necessity of the new birth. Number seven, an evolutionary concept of the origin of all things as opposed to a creationist view. view. What would be that? Theistic evolution. Number eight, a rejection of the supernatural interventions of God in human history. And then number nine, are you ready for number nine? Now remember, this is all, this is all what was going on in the 19th century. Now we just get a book in 2020 going, oh, we've got a problem, progressive Christianity. No, the fundamentalist was trying to tell you evangelicals there was a problem in the 19th century and you didn't listen and now you reap the consequences. Right? Are you ready for number nine? An emphasis upon the social gospel. 
Does that not sound familiar? Social gospel. What is that? That the main mission of the church is to correct societal ills. Sin is essentially a social, is social, and thus salvation must involve the correction of those social problems. A social gospel. Look, I get so sick of conservatives getting mad at liberal Christians because they say, all you care about is a social gospel, and you want to you do your LGBTQ, and you want your, your this, and your that, your that. You Christians are all messed up. And then we turn around, and then what do we do on the conservative side? Oh, we got to get this person elected, and we got to get this elected, and we got to fight those social ills by getting politicians elected. That's social gospel. The solution isn't politics. The Bible never says it's the solution. What does the Bible say the solution is? Salvation. We say that we. What do we say the problem? Is? The biblical are the problems societal or are they spiritual? Spiritual that that show up. And society, all right? So, that, th- those are the problems, all right? So, guess what? If those are the problems, then what happened? All right, here we go. You ready? All right. Here we go. The thing that showed up in the 19th century to try to combat this was the Niagara Bible Conference, the Niagara Bible Conference. But before we get to the conference, we need to go back a couple of years to something that started happening. Are you ready? Before the Niagara Bible Conference officially began, there was an informal, there were informal private Bible studies among many of its most significant figures. There was a group of individuals who started getting together for informal and private Bible studies. They were like, we got a problem going on here. We got a problem. So they said, we're going to get back to studying the Bible. All right? The first such meeting happened in 1868. All right? 1868. They gathered in New York City. Several similar gatherings took place throughout the next several years. Most, probably the most significant gathering of this group of individuals, and I've got all their names here, but I'm not going to worry about the names because you're not going to remember them or probably may not know them. All right, um, there's at least one here you should know, but... Um, The most significant meeting uh, took place in a cottage outside of Chicago in the summer of 1875. All right. That's the most significant meeting in a a cottage outside of Chicago in the summer of 1875. I've got all the attendees of of the meeting, but we won't worry about it, okay? Now, that's 18 what? 75. So when was the first meeting? 1868. When was the the most significant meeting? 1875. And then guess what happens in 1883? Please note, this was years in the making, right? Okay. Um, In 1883, a group of Christian Bible scholars met for the first time at Niagara on on the lake. Niagara on the lake. Okay, Ontario, right? Near Niagara Falls. So it was near Niagara Falls. That's where it gets the name Niagara, okay? 
right? That's the Niagara Bible Conference. That conference is super influential in, formu- in the formulation of what movement? What movement flows from this conference? Fundamentalism. No, dispensationalism is big at this conference, but we won't get into the whole dispensational argument. Fundamentalism, that's where it comes from. Now, what were the fundamentalists worried about? All of those things I just gave you. We've got to fight against this. But please note, how did they start fighting it? Bible studies. <laughs> they weren't running around to get, it wasn't a political thing. It was a biblical thing. When, 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 when modern Christians argue with me about this, I'm always like, what, do you read church history? It's always a, a spiritual solution. It's always a spiritual solution. Right? But here's something happened. When, when was the, uh, the, the first meeting of the conference? Well, that's when they met. That wasn't a conference yet. The first official conference happened where? 1883. 83. But something happened prior to the conference. 1878. The creed was written in 1878. And this creed becomes foundational, not only to what the conference would cover, but this creed, listen, becomes foundational to what? Fundamentalism. Now, because this creed comes out of a time where there was all of this apostasy spreading in the 19th century, and we know what happens. 19th century, you got all of that apostasy, and what's getting ready to happen right at the beginning of the 20th century? Azusa Street and the birth of charismatic theology, which is the cancer that's going, that systematically started destroying Christianity. I hold charismatic theology responsible for pretty much all the modern eras of Christianity. Charismatic theology is an absolute cancer. It's a disease. It, I, I, it should never have been tolerated. I cannot stand charismatics. All right? I can't. Not. I don't see them as Christians. I see them as crazy. Right? Now, you can say, well, there's some mild charismatics. I, I'm sorry. That theology is evil. It's satanic. It's ungodly. It's crazy. It's insane. All right? So, but that's when the, 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 the creed was written. All right? Now, I don't have time to obviously get to the first part of the creed, which I wanted to. But let, me, let me just show you how the impact of this creed was. Right? This creed became uh, basically uh, the, the foundation for Biola University. Uh, Moody Church in Chicago. Um, it became, uh, the creed became the basis for Dallas Theological Seminary. Yeah. This creed becomes like the foundation for these things. The foundation for these. I mean, it, you, it, it, I don't even know how people don't know about the creed. It's how, that's how instrumental it is. But it was lost. It was lost. Forgotten. Look, I, all the years in Bible College Seminary, never even heard a course on the Niagara Bible Creed, ever. But it became foundational because that's where fundamentalism. When I was an independent fundamentalist Baptist in Nebraska, they never mentioned the creed. But it's the, why? You know why? Why do you think the creed got lost? Historical illiteracy, but there's another thing. What, what do you think fundamentalism started doing? 
No, no, no. The fundamentalists started fighting the liberal theology by running to an equal and opposite error. They started taking their focus off scripture and they started turning it to what? Rules. Music, hair, movies, playing cards. Dancing. That became the issues. And they thought they were fighting that worldly liberalism, but what they needed to fight the worldly, li- liter- uh, the worldly liberalism with what? Scripture. We always run to the wrong way to fight. Christ- let, let me state it this way. Christianity isn't just about fighting. It's about fighting the biblical way. If you're not, you may be fighting the right thing, but if you're fighting it the wrong way, then you're not biblical. Right? If you've ever seen this, uh, me and Landon, we have this conversation uh, constantly uh, because uh, I, I watch Chicago PD a, a lot. And if you watch Chicago PD, every, every, every character in that show is messed up. They never handle anything morally. So the cops are many times fighting crime, but they're doing it in the most immoral way. Right? And so I'm always explaining to Landon that, hey, sometimes you can be trying to do the right thing the wrong way. So, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be a case going on and then I'll stop and I'll pause. I'm like, okay, Landon, what, what's the cop doing? He's like, well, he's trying to do the right thing, but he's doing it the wrong way. And so I've, I'm like, that's the message of Chicago PD. Like, fighting crime, but doing it in the most <laughs> wrong way possible. And, 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 and then what's so twisted about the show is it almost gets you cheering for the corrupt cop who's, and you're like, yeah, do that to the criminal. That's not the biblical mindset, okay? That's not the biblical way so it's but that's 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 the best illustration i can come up with all right so they tried to fight it biblically all right so here you go i'm going to give you i'm going to do now we're going to do this quickly and we'll be done i want to go right to the points but the creed does anybody know how many points are in the creed oh very good either y'all got your phones open or you got internet in the church okay okay man i don't even need to be here anymore okay why am i even a pastor okay okay i I'm just going to leave, okay? Just, just, I'll just ask Siri and Google. You don't need me, okay? All right, but 14 points, all right? Now, I'm going to give you the points. I'm not going to read you the statements. I'm just going to give you a summary where you'll have a summary of the 14 points of the creed. Are you ready? Here we go. We're going to go quick. You write fat. When you're done, say amen so I know I can move on. All right, you ready? 1878, here's the 14-point creed. Point number one, the verbal, plenary, inspiration of Scripture, in the original manuscripts. Verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures in the original manuscripts. Whew, there's a, that's a lot. Right there, do you understand that that first statement is about 12 years of teaching? Verbal, what do we mean by verbal? Plenary, what do we mean by plenary? Inspiration, what do we mean by inspiration? And what do we mean in the original manuscripts? If the original manuscripts are inspired, then what, what do we have here? Do we, do we say it's inspired? What do we mean by that? It raises lots of questions, right? Raises lots of questions. Now, guess what? The average church member doesn't want to hear those questions, but you go off to college, guess what? Someone's going to ask you those questions, okay? A professor's going to ask those questions, and then the church kid's like, I don't know what to do. Okay, well, mom and dad, you should have been helping them know what to do, Okay. Your job is to prepare them, right? And then the church should prepare them. And if you don't even know how to answer it, you should know how to answer it. Okay? 
the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures and the original manuscripts. And then number two, the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? You know why I think that's amazing? So the birth of fundamentalism starts with a creed that deals with the inspiration of scripture and number two deals with the Trinity. And I will tell you that many fundamentalist church, whenever they try to handle the doctrine of the Trinity, they mess it up so bad that it's embarrassing. Why? They spend more time worrying about if someone's listening to secular music than they are whether they know the doctrine of the Trinity. They're more worried that someone is going to go to the movie theater than they are about the doctrine of the Trinity. They're more worried about if a woman wears pants or not wear pants than they are the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I'm not saying you undermine other moral issues, but I'm saying what's the, ba- what's, what's the foundation for all moral issues? A correct understanding of God. <laughs> because it doesn't matter if you don't listen to secular music if you're worshiping the wrong God. Okay? Right? Muslims have lots of pretty conservative standards. Where is that going to get them? Hell! Okay? Does that everybody understand that? Right. Number three, the creation of man, the fall into sin, and total depravity. Creation of man, fall into sin, and total depravity. All right, everybody ready for the next one? All right. So, number one, verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Number two, the Trinity. Number three, the creation of man, the fall into sin, and total depravity. Number four, the universal transmission of spiritual death from Adam. The universal transmission of spiritual death from Adam. Okay. The, universal, the universal transmission of spiritual death from Adam. All right? Everybody got the next? Everybody got that? Let me repeat it. Say amen when you're done. If y'all want to go home today. Okay. All right. The, necess- <laughs> the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of the new birth. Next, redemption by the blood of Christ. Redemption by the blood of Christ. Next, salvation by faith alone in Christ. You ready for the next one? The assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation, which, which deals with eternal security of the believer and how do you know you're saved. Right. Next, the centrality of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. The centrality of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. What does that deal with? Does anybody know what that deals with? The centrality of Jesus Christ in the scriptures? Put in parentheses, hermeneutics. That's a hermeneutical argument. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but just please note that that's a hermeneutical argument. The centrality of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. Next, the constitution of the true church by genuine believers. The constitution of the true church by genuine believers. Next, the personality of the Holy Spirit. What is, uh, what is that? Why, why would you focus on the personality of the Holy Spirit? Tr- deals with the doctrine of Trinity. If the, if the Holy Spirit's not a person, then you don't have one God and three distinct persons. 
Right? So, personality of the Holy Spirit. Next, the believer's call to a holy life. The believer's call to a holy life. Now, you can, tell, you can see what happened in fundamentalism. Which point of that creed becomes the most dominant focus? The believer's call to a holy life. That's what everybody focuses on. Where is it listed? Well, way yeah, down. way down. Okay, but we we moved that to the front. I think I heard more. I think I heard more sermons when I was an independent fundamental Baptist on the evils of rock and roll than I ever did on the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, and I and most of those sermons about music were directed specifically at me because clearly no one else in the church knew anything about music. So I don't know why he was preaching on it. Clearly, he was pointing me out. Okay, that evil person right there who listens to that evil music, you know, he is evil. He may know the doctrine of the Trinity, but he listens to music. Okay, and we can't have that in church. Okay, we can't have evil music. We need a lot of musically illiterate people. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's how that works. Next, the immediate passing of the souls of believers to be with Christ at death. The immediate passing of the souls of believers to be with Christ at death. What is that fighting? Purgatory or soul sleep. Yep. The immediate, and remember at the time, what was reviving? Catholicism, yeah. And then, guess what the last point is? The premillennial second coming of Christ. The premillennial second coming of Christ. And guess why? Because most of the leaders at this conference were dispensationalists. Believed in dispensationalism. That's why, historically, if you, if you go to an independent fundamental Baptist church, what Bible do they hand you? Schofield Reference Bible, which comes from Darby's ideas. of And guess what you find in the Schofield Reference Bible? The dispensationalism, right? Starts right there in Genesis. Gives you the seven dispensations, okay? I think it's seven. I may have the number wrong, all right? There is the creed. All right, any question? Any, repeat any of those. Yes, no? All right, that gets you up to the creed. Now, at some point, I, I will probably use some church services and I'll probably use a lot of... Uh, podcast, um, in fact, I may do a, one tonight, uh, or this afternoon, I'll probably do, well, before your Sunday evening, I'm just going to move on. I, I hate doing, like, some from the pulpit, like this. I, I hate doing this without you here, but obviously I can't pull it off. So, but I'm going to go through, and we're going to start with the first point of the creed. Now, why is this important? Well, if this creed was so critical, if that creed was so critical in establishing a fight against what was happening, then do we not need to get back to some of these key foundational principles to fight what's going on today? I think we do. I think we do. And please note, what ultimately flows from the Niagara Conference? Yeah, I've only told you how to read these like nine billion times. The fundamentals. And guess what? If you look at the table of contents of the fundamentals... It's going to be very similar to things related to what? That creed. Hmm. I wonder why. I wonder why. You see how church history can fit together? 
That's why I've pleaded and pleaded. Read the fundamentals. I mean, I've been saying that years and 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 years. Read the fundamentals. That's why I've had them at the church forever, right? That's why we've been giving away copies. Um, uh, thanks to a listener who sent us money and we're, we're, who's paying for the giveaway. Uh, we've been giving away copies of the fundamentals because I'm doing everything I can. Like we, we're in a time right now where Christianity is under attack and we've got to get back to the fundamentals. We've got to get back to these fundamentals and know these fundamentals. Not just know them. You've got to realize these are the things you need to be worried about because Christianity is being rewritten. And if you don't have a strong definition, then guess what? Then someone can redefine it, and you don't, and you just accept the redefining and not even realize based off your ignorance. That's why we do this kind of teaching in this church. I know most churches would never cover what we just covered, right? But if we, if we wanted to be like other churches, well, then there's no point this one being here. So, you know, that's, that's why we're always going to do things differently, right? Any questions? I went through a lot. That's a lot of history. And we started in the present. We went back to the first meeting, which 18... 68, then the most significant meeting was in Chicago in a cottage in where, what year? Okay, 1878 was the time of the creed. Yeah, 1875 was the meeting in Chicago. Okay, then the first actual conference, 83, and what happened prior to that conference? The creed, which was in 18... To the best of my ability, 1878. I believe that's what most sources say is 1878. Um, at, first, at first, it can be confusing. You're like, well, how did the creed precede the conference? Because a lot of times it's written in history books that the conference gave rise to the creed, which is incorrect. The creed preceded the conference. In fact, when I first started looking at this again, I was confused for a moment because, like, wait a minute, I thought the creed came from the conference. And because a lot of books state that, and it's just incorrect. It preceded it, which makes sense because that gave a framework for what the conference would focus on. And guess what? Those conferences were packed. Packed with people. Because they understood that the problems facing the world were spiritual, not political. Now you can get, a, you can get more people at a political rally than you can at a Bible study. Right? Because people have become so politically focused and that's the problem. Right? And you have a lot of young people Right? I mean, Emma, any of the, any of the Dazzler, uh, any of them, you can go to your, col- your college that you're currently at and just ask young people. A lot of young people hate the church now because they see the church as a political movement. They hate the church because they think it's political. They think the church now equals Trump or equals con- republicanism. And you've got to tell them, no, the church has nothing to do with that. Church is not connected with that. Church is not, Christianity is not that. And if you are a Christian and you're making people out there on social media believe that because of your post, you need to repent of that because that's the last thing you want to do. A lot of older people are like, I don't care what those young people think. You need to care what those young people think because they have an eternal soul and they're going to go to hell because they reject your Christianity, not because of the cross, but because of your favorite political candidate. Make them reject Christianity because of scripture, not because of your political candidate. Christianity has nothing to do with politics. Right? Our focus is different. Now, we may have certain political, political beliefs based off our Christianity, but just focus on Christianity. You, trying to convince the world to vote your way just makes them reject your Christianity because of how you vote. And you shouldn't do anything to cause someone to stumble, right? Don't be a stumbling block. What's more important? Christianity 
is more important. And if we lose focus of that, then we are going to lose everything because Christianity is going to be redefined and we're going to be responsible for it. And someone's got to leave a, a, a trace of biblical Christianity for the next generation, right? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to redefine it again. Not redefine it. We're going to, we're going to redefine it in the sense of repeating. We're going to repeat the definition. Yeah, that's a better way to put it. All right, we'll stop right there. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, thank you for a church that allows uh, such a lengthy study and a, and a, a digging into history. Many churches would never tolerate a message like this. Um, I'm thankful that we have a place where we can do this. I pray that people who want the same thing would find us, and the people who don't, uh, there's plenty of other places to provide what they want. But Christianity is under attack, and if it's our responsibility, each one in this room, to do what they can to, to help preserve and defend biblical Christianity and to do what we can to preach the word to any person and every person we meet. Because if we don't, Christianity is slowly but surely being destroyed uh, while we are alive and we're going to be held accountable for the fact that we didn't take a stand for it. And I don't want to be uh, in that number and I hope no one in this building wants to be there as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said. Welcome back, everyone, to what we're calling this evening Theology Central Radio. That was October the 20th, October the 25th, 2020, Victory Baptist Church, Ovalo, Texas, the Niagara Creed Part 1, almost almost 80 minutes long of teaching. I think that was the Sunday school hour that morning. Hopefully you found that beneficial. Hopefully you found that helpful. Just to explain what we're doing here is we're basically, um, you know, grabbing all, and we've got thousands of hours of content, right, that could just be just could sit there, digitally speaking, be covered in dust. I'm dusting these things off, grabbing them, bringing them over, broadcasting them live. We'll also upload them into a series that we call Theology Central Radio. Um, I don't know how many times we will do this, uh, but, you know, um, we'll, we'll try We're going to try it this evening. We're going to see how this goes. Uh, what we'll do is uh, probably between... Now, I, I know to be truly radio... There should not be any stop or pause, uh, but we, we will stop and pause them so that I can upload the previous one and then we'll come right back in and start the second one. And then we will just, we'll just do this for a couple of hours this evening. I don't know. And then we'll, we'll, we'll just, we'll just see how it goes. We would love to get your feedback, at least on this. I know it's kind of an experimental idea. But I, I'm just convinced that if you if you produce thousands of hours of content like I have, I mean, who knows how many thousands of hours? It, is anyone ever going to find it? I mean, you like to think that someone's going to search and find it, but do any search on the Sermons 2.0 app. Search for a particular scripture, a particular doctrine, a particular topic. Typically, you are you have thousands of sermons available. Who knows they will ever find mine? Who knows they would ever find yours if you're a pastor? And then, and then on any other podcasting app, maybe they will find yours. Maybe they will not. I mean, you, there are millions of podcast episodes available. You know, so many. So um, why not bring some of the old stuff back and play it? And uh, well, you know, maybe spark a new conversation. May spark a new discussion. May start spark new emails. Um, and you're, it gives your broadcast just, you know, being there hour after hour after hour that hopefully someone stumbles upon it. And, well, it, it, it does something worthwhile, hopefully. So that's October the 25th, 
2020. When we come right back, we're going to take a, we'll just stop for just a few minutes. When we come back, I think we're going to jump to May of 2020. Now, I find uh, some of this interesting because you you can tell that some of this was happening right there in the midst of kind of the whole COVID situation. Uh, and some of these situations we were trying to at least meet once in person. And then everything else we were doing was uh, live streaming. And then I think we went, at, we did a couple of uh, uh, some things where we did all live streaming. We were trying to do a mix, trying to figure it out. It was con- a confusing time. It was, oh, it was maddening at times. Uh, but what we'll do is uh, in the next one, we'll go to, that was October of 2020. Let's go back to May of 2020. We'll go back to May 17th and we're going to ask this question, what should be the guiding principle for the church? That's what we'll look at coming up in the next do we call it episode? The next episode of Theology Central Radio and we will be back live in about 5 to 10 minutes. Thank you for tuning in. God bless.